the need to demonstrate self-control, this inward result that should come from the faith that we profess, and that shows itself most readily, most apparent in the way we use it. Okay? So let's look together then at what chapter 3 has to say about this notion. James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. And the chapter goes on, we will see about that same, that same thing. And so the test of authentic belief, authentic faith, genuine profession of faith in Christ, in chapter 3, is whether or not we demonstrate self-control by what we say. And he starts off talking about people who want to be but the background to this goes to something that many of you are familiar with because when I did our series earlier in the summer called War of Words, I mentioned this passage a number of times. And that's the background to what James is saying here. And it is Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34. Matthew 12, 34. If you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, he says, it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So Jesus is saying, the way you talk, the way I talk, the way we use our tongues is a demonstration of what's inside, what's in our heart. Well, that has a lot of ramifications for it, doesn't it? It means I can't so easily dismiss what I say as no big deal. I can't so easily say, well, it just slipped out. I can't just say, well, I didn't really mean that. Jesus is saying, what we say, how we use our tongues, is an indication of what's inside. And that's the background. Jesus spoke those words out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks before James wrote this. James was familiar with it. And now based upon that truth, that how we speak externally shows something about us internally, now James is saying, we need to demonstrate self-control if we really believe in Christ. And the most apparent evidence that you have that self-control is how you use your how you use your tongue. Now he starts with teachers. And he says, not many of you should presume to be teachers. Why does he, why does he do that? Well, teachers do their teaching through the tongue, just like I'm doing right now. And so the tongue has to be controlled in what we teach by what we say. So someone who is going to be a teacher must control his or her tongue because that's the vehicle through which the teaching comes to those that have been placed under their charge. Now, I want you to notice two things that this is not. When he says in verse 1, not many of you should presume to be teachers, it's not deprecating the idea of teachers. The Bible talks many times about the need to have teachers. It's not a problem to be a teacher. And it's not uh, deprecating the, the notion of teaching uh, is itself, but rather it is a warning against those who would instruct others without having this capacity of self-control. And it's not just official capacity. You know, so I've got a, a vocation as a pastor, part of which means I teach, so I'm doing that now. But it's not just those in official capacity as teachers that are being warned against. 
It's people who would just tell folks how the world works in even informal settings. Seeking to counsel and instruct other people. And it's warning against them. Be very careful about your influence with your tongue on other people where you are looked to as a person to instruct. So it's not just official capacity. It's informing relationships in which people gather and say, this is the way things are supposed to work. Don't presume to be able to do that. And be very careful in the way you use your tongue, James is one, in doing that. Now, this was, a, this was a big deal today, as you'll see in some of the illustrations I'm going to give. And it was a big deal back then. Obviously, that's why I wrote it. But it was a big deal for uh, one reason in particular. The meetings of the early church were very democratic in nature. That is, apparently, in the early church, when they would gather, there would be opportunity for people to just say something. And if somebody wanted to stand up and talk, people could do that. Now, that goes back to their synagogue days. You guys remember reading in the New Testament passages like in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day? And he just, you know, the, the text just presented as Jesus wandering into the synagogue. And he's able to stand up. You know, it's not scheduled. He's not the guest speaker for the day. But he's able to stand up and, and unroll the scroll to the place, the Isaiah scroll, it tells us, to the place where it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he has sent me to preach good news to the captives. All of that in Luke chapter 4. And it turns out Jesus read from what we know as Isaiah chapter 61 in the Old Testament. And then he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then Jesus said, oh. But he said, just get up and read and say. Or in Acts chapter 13, you have the same thing. The apostles go into a synagogue on the Sabbath. And when they go in Acts chapter 13, it says the people who were there said, do you all have anything to say to us? And they invited them to come and say something. So the nature of the early church was this sort of democratic, it's fairly, it's fairly open. I'll tell you where else you see it. Is in 1 Corinthians 14 in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 14. And in 1 Corinthians 14, you may remember that whole context. You know, Paul has to give instruction there. Paul who wrote it has to give instruction there to the church at Corinth about the orderliness of their meetings because they were disorganized. And part of the disorganization was people yapping. Too many, too many people talking. Too many people instructed. And so you get to the end of 1 Corinthians 14, and you may remember, he comes to verse 40, and it says, God is not a God of disorder, but of order. And so this is why I've given these instructions, that when you speak, it should be one at a time. You know, not somebody speaking, and then somebody jumping up and saying, you don't know what you're talking about. And so in the early church, this was a problem, just like it's a problem today for people and their self-control and the use of their tongues, but a particular problem because of the informality of the meetings. Now, thankfully, we don't have that particular problem. You know, if you disagree with what I say, it may be because I'm wrong. Uh, that's been the case and will be the case in the future. But generally, people don't jump up and say, you're an idiot. Okay? They think I'm an idiot, I may be an idiot. 
but generally people don't jump up and say that, thankfully. So we don't have that particular problem, but we're still faced with the issue of the more informal cadres of people that have a following who then tell others the way the world works and presume to be teachers for those folks. Now that happens, and that happens in churches. You know? get people who stand their folks to themselves. They are looked at with respect for whatever reason by those in their following. And they begin to tell people the way they think it should go. And so they chirp, complain, you know, and what just about every time they get together with their, their group, it goes into one of these complaints. You say, really, does that happen? Uh, does that happen here? I don't know. <laughs> and uh, if I did know, I would look to do something about it. But I'm not naive to that. Because the Bible warns against it, one, so that means it can happen. Further, I've seen that. I've actually seen that. And it ain't pretty. It is not pretty. When a presumed leader that people have respect for for whatever reason, good businessman, nice guy, good speaker, whatever, people are attracted to them, they gather a group of people around them, they want to be somebody, and so they talk about the way they think things should go. And they begin to criticize the way those who are actually leading in official capacities actually do that. And it becomes, it becomes uh, a real uh, complaint party every time folks get there. I've seen churches split because of that, believe it or not. Great harm done, all started by the lack of self-control on the part of someone who presumed to be a teacher and the willingness of some number of people to listen to that. Over time, it festers, it grows, it gets worse, and ultimately explodes. I've seen it in experience. The Bible warns against it. I don't know that that's happening anywhere in our church, and I assume it's not. But I'm also not naive to the possibility that it could. It's happened to others better than us. And if the Bible warns about it, then it could. So be instructed on both levels. Be instructed not to presume to be a teacher. That's what James says. Don't just be presumptuous about that. And assume that you have to throw in your two cents all the time to anybody who's willing to listen. Don't be presumptuous about that. And further, don't be the person who's willing to listen to that presumptuous person. The truth is, if those folks can't get an audience, they go nowhere, right? And so James warns against it in chapter 3 and verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers. Now, he calls them, he calls them brothers in the middle of verse 1. So... These are not heretics, people teaching false doctrine necessarily that need to be removed from the church. But here's what one commentator says about what James is warning against. Listen to this. He's seeking to curb the danger of talkativeness, of reckless, reckless statements, of frothy rhetoric, of abusive language, and of misleading assertions on the part of those who are informal leaders in the church. Now, why should we care about it? Why is it a big deal? That this lack of self-control is being demonstrated in how someone talks through their desire to teach others, tell them how the world works? End of verse 1. 
Because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And so God, Jesus gave a principle when he, was, when he walked here to him whom much is given. You remember, much will be required. And to the person who takes responsibility on themselves, they are going to be judged according to the damage that they have done to something that is precious to God. The people that you have gathered around you are precious to God would be presumptuous teachers. The church is precious to God. In fact, let me just show you how precious it is to God. You hold your finger in James 3 and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians. of this. In my Bible, it has at the top of chapter 3 a type. Just above where chapter 3 starts. There's my name right now. I have one. Mine says this. On divisions in the church. Some of you have that same thing? On divisions in the church. Alright, so chapter 3 is about that. About divisions in the church. Now we're not going to read the whole passage, but some of you know that in the church that received this letter, the church at Corinth, they had these divisions. And chapter 3 tells us that some of them were siding with their favorite guy. And so some would say, chapter 3 tells us, I am of Paul. Or I am of Apollos. Or I am a follower of Peter's. Some even said, I am of Christ. So, can you see these bozos? They're all teaming up with their favorite guy. And then you got one group, the really spiritual group, says, well, we just, we're, we're followers of Christ. So they're just as factional as the rest of them, but they're all choosing their side. And they've got this dissension, factions, division within the church. And Paul, who wrote this, warns these folks about this. How much does God care about his church? Well, notice verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Now, some of you have heard that phrase before, the temple of God. That you are the temple of God because you've read it, not in this passage, but in a passage just a few pages away, chapter 6. Hold your finger, make your fingers holding in James 3, now put your fingers through. So the first thing is 6. Verse 19. First Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you perceive from God? And so many of you have heard that. You know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that. But the translators have done a favor here, and they've done it right here. In chapter 6 and verse 19, they say, notice, your body 
is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That is, it's talking about your individual body being one of many temples of the Holy Spirit. So that's the way it's used in chapter 6. Your individual, singular body, being a temple of the Holy Spirit. But in chapter 3, I want you to notice how it's worded. Sounds the same, but different in an important way. Chapter 3, again, verses 16 and 17. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? Notice it doesn't say you are a temple, but it's actually plural. You yourselves are God's temple. The reason it's translated that way is because in Greek, this is written in chapter 3 as a plural. It's you guys collectively, you yourselves. It's referring to the church. Not the individual body of one Christian. That's in chapter 6. We, If we come to Christ, we all have the Holy Spirit. And our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But in chapter 3, you yourselves, collectively, plural, all y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit Church. Now, get the warning again in chapter 3. You yourselves are God's temple. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, so if anyone destroys what? What would that be? That would be pretty serious stuff, wouldn't it? And some of what I was telling you about that I've actually observed the phenomenon of a church being ruptured in heart that began because someone did not follow the dictates of James chapter 3. Do not presume. And call a group of people to yourself through your influence. And start to adversely influence those people through the use of the tongue. Such that over time, it grows, it becomes worse. A church is ruptured. God knows every piece of that, doesn't he? So there is judgment for the person who does that. Now, if that person is genuinely a believer and they simply fell into sin, serious sin, God will still judge. God will judge at what the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ. Doesn't mean they go to hell. But they will be confronted with that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Speak of that very issue. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. If the person's not a believer, they will be judged at what's called the great white throne of, throne of judgment in either case. However they're judged at the end, judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne of judgment for unbelievers, they may be judged in this life. Because God sometimes brings harm toward folks as a matter of punishment. For sin committed even in this life in the Bible has examples of that over and over again. So would you all agree with me? This is a really serious matter. And those who presume to be teachers are. So why do we worry about it? Because those who presume to teach will be judged with stricter judgment, says James. Now, verse 2 of James 3. We all stumble, verse 2, in many ways. It says we all stumble back in chapter 2 and verse 10. If you look at chapter 2 and verse 10. You have the same word. Whoever keeps the whole law, chapter 2, verse 10. And yet, and here's the word, stumbles at just one point, is guilty 
break moment. And so the stumble is a is a sin. Now, it's a stumble. It's a sin. A moral failure. Clearly from chapter 2 and verse 10, same word. You've broken God's law. And he says if you've broken one part of God's law, you're guilty of breaking. It's the same as you're guilty of breaking all. So now in chapter 3 and verse 2, we all stumble. It's another way of saying we all sin. Okay? And we all stumble, stumble a lot. And in many ways. And the reason it's translated stumble is the word pictures you going along and hitting your foot against an obstacle. And you don't fall and die, but you're going along your walk with Christ, as it were, your, your Christian walk, your Christian life, and this failure, this sin, is a stumble in that walk. And James says in verse 2, we all stumble a lot in all sorts of ways. And notice he says we. Who does that include? That includes the guy who wrote it. James. James says I do too. But did you know, and would you agree that being aware of your own propensities toward failure is the first step toward overcoming. That him who thinks he stands to he was involved. Being aware that I'm incapable of falling. That you are capable of falling. Because we all sin in all sorts of ways. And James understood that about himself. And I understand that about myself. And you need to understand it about yourself. Therefore, you must be the one to be careful about the use of your own tongue and also the giving of your ears to those who use theirs. We all stumble in all sorts of ways. But if anyone, verse 2, is not never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. But there is no one who's never at fault. But hypothetically, if there ever was, that would be, that would be a perfect person. But it is the goal toward which each of us is to aspire. To have our tongues under control, demonstrating the self-control that should come from genuine belief in Christ, so that even though we all stumble, we are making evident, obvious progress in this issue of the use of our tongues. As we're able to do that, the last part of verse 2, it means we're able to keep the whole body if you can do that, if you can work on that, if you can get your tongue on your head, then you've got self-control. That's what he's saying. Because this is the most obvious evidence, display, of whether or not you have self-control, how you use your tongue. If you can control that, you can control everything. If you can demonstrate self-control in the way you talk, then you can demonstrate self-control in the other thing you well, that's exactly what James is saying. He says you're able to keep your whole body, the King James says, I believe, bridled. The idea says in check. And the idea is of a bit that's put into the mouth of a horse. In fact, in verse 4, he's going to give an illustration from the use of a bit in the mouth of a horse. And how that illustrates how the tongue can control the whole the whole body. The use of the tongue. 
So let's look at that illustration. We put bits, verse 3, into the mouths of horses, verse 3, to make them obey us so we can turn the whole animal. Or, verse 4, take ships. Although they're large and driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder. Wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. So in a positive way, if someone <coughs> has self-control that's evidenced by the way they use their tongue, then here are positive illustrations of how that would work. It would be just like the small thing, the bit in the mouth of a horse controlling this powerful animal, or a small rudder controlling the direction of this large ship. Same thing with the small tongue demonstrating control for the whole body. Now, this bit that's in the mouth of a horse, that control, that, uh, that keeping in check or bridling is a word in Greek that means literally this. Power under control. And it's used in another passage in the New Testament that many of you are familiar with. You remember the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? Well, he starts that sermon out in Matthew 5 with what had become known as the Beatitudes. And Jesus, because they're called the Beatitudes because the Beatitude is a blessing, and Jesus says, blessed are those. And he has a number of verses right at the beginning of that sermon where he says, blessed are those who? Because. Blessed are the me. You all remember that? That was one of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the me. And why are the meek blessed? Because they will inherit the earth. And I'll tell you what that has to do with a bit in a horse's mouth in a second. Power under control. But I heard a comedian several years ago. Well, I heard a comedian doing a stand-up thing. He says, he goes, you know, I'm feeling pretty good about myself these days because I was reading the Bible. Some secular comedian. And he says, and it says that the elite are going to inherit the earth. He goes, my whole life I've been a win. And he says, it always made me feel bad, but I figure a wimp can take a new game. <laughs> so I'm going to inherit the earth. <laughs> Jesus says, blessed are the meek, because they will inherit the earth. And that word meek is the same word for the bit in the horse's mouth. Power under control. The meek person is not the weak person. It's the person who may be very strong. But they have that strength under control, self-control. And the bit is what causes that control. And for us, let me ask you, what is the cause, the effective cause of that control, of the power that we need to harness in our tongues and our whole bodies? What is the source of that restraint for us? It is the Holy Spirit. Because self-control is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. Order Turn to Galatians 5. Selfish ambition, dissension, 
factions. You guys start to see this tongue thing in there, though? Factions, dissension, fits of rage, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warned you as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and lo and behold, self-control. Now here's what that means. Now you may feel guilty. Now, I generally consider my job to have been done successfully if people come away feeling guilty. Now, I only have to open it. Because in order for you to get from me to get from straight, I have to recognize the wrong. So you have to recognize there's something wrong that I have to the wrong. So we have to get over that up, but, but I always want to get hope as well. If you're, if you're a follower of Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, then you have the ability for self-control. Not because of you but because of the one who lives in you. You have the ability for self-control. You can do this. And further, God requires that we must do this. And so he gives illustrations. Oh, possible in that there's the horse, there's the ship. Then James goes on to give an illustration of a forest fire. You know, just one spark and a whole forest can be set on fire. So it is, he says, at the time. Start a small thing, starts out small, it can be great and enormous. Yeah. It ends with verses 13 through 18. And I'd like to conclude looking at verses 13 through 18. And what they said about how the self-control demonstrates either godly wisdom or false wisdom. Verse 13. Who is wise in understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth about it. Such, and notice the NIV has it in quotes, such quote wisdom. It's not really wisdom, it's false wisdom, but it's somebody boasting that they know the deal. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, it's unspiritual, it's of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. And all of that is related to the kind of dissension and difficulty that can, comes from using your tongue. And what James is saying, that closing portion is this. How you use your tongue demonstrates whether or not you have this inward self-control. And the use of our tongues is a very clear display as to whether or not we have the wisdom that he talked about in chapter 1. Some of you were with us when we looked at chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1, verse 5? If any of you lacks, go up. Let him ask of God, who gives generously to all, and does not withhold, and it will be given. So, the use of our tongues demonstrates whether we have the self-control, and whether or not we have the wisdom, which is the 
which is the goal that God has for us in the things that he allows to come into our lives. Chapter 1. If I don't have it, I can't have it. How do I know I can't have it? Self-control the fruit of the Spirit. And God says, if I don't have wisdom, if I ask him, he will most definitely promise to give it to me. So we're going to close at noon. We're going to pray in just a moment. But let me invite you, friends, to evaluate yourself and evaluate the use of your tongue and whether or not it demonstrates the self-control that is to be the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the reality of what we say and Think about the way you talk. Think about the people with whom you talk. Think about the people to whom you get here and the kinds of stuff that they say. And you may need to make some changes with that. I don't know. I don't know if anybody here who needs to. But you might, and I know. So let's honestly evaluate. And then take hope. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. And thus you can have the self-control. And if you ask Him for wisdom, He promises to give it. And you have Father, thank you for this reminder of this most important teaching about the tongue and its power for both good or ill. Lord, help me to demonstrate the self-control that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in my life by the way I use my tongue. Lord, help me to use my tongue in a way to build up others, not tear them down. Help me, Lord, to use my tongue both publicly and privately in a way that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, to the extent that we don't do this, and we all stumble in many ways, I stumble in so many ways. To the extent that we do not do this, help us, Lord, to take hope in the fact that the Holy Spirit will generate this self-control in the lives of those who want to participate with Him in our work. And you have told us that if we lack wisdom, that is the proper use of what you have given to the ends for which you gave it. In this case, the use of our tongues, if we don't have this wisdom, you told us, Lord, if we lack it, ask, and you will give. This Lord, I ask, grant me wisdom in the use of my tongue. Grant my brothers and sisters wisdom in the use of their tongue. And as a result, may we be built up. May we build up one another. May we be honored in our assembly. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.